eyes of our understanding, Lord God, that we would be able to apply the truth of your word. Father God, that it would accomplish that which it is sent to, Father, that it would do your perfect work in our life. God, as we present ourselves as the clay and, and you as the potter, Lord, we pray, you pull out the junk and make us clean. Make us a vessel fit for your use, Lord God, that we might glorify you in all we do. And we give you all the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm there now. Last time as we were going through, we, we came to this part. You'll remember, Jeremiah, God told Jeremiah to buy a piece of property. I like these glasses, brother. That works pretty good. The fingerprints I could do without, but the glasses are good. No. Should I? I got them from Fritzy. Because he's blind, too. <laughs> Last time you'll remember... Jeremiah was told by God to buy a piece of property. Now, keep in mind what was going on. You remember the king, or king, Nebuchadnezzar, who was a king. Nebuchadnezzar was right outside Jerusalem. Uh, he had 
taken the property, the property that God told Jeremiah to go ahead and buy. Nebuchadnezzar's army was sitting on it. The, the children of Israel were being conquered, and, and God told Jeremiah, go buy a piece of property, which is not probably the best time to go buy a piece of property when that entire area is about to come under someone else's control. But Jeremiah did it. And after Jeremiah did it, he's a little bit confused about it and why he did it. So he says, Lord, you know, do you have any idea what you're doing? Basically, that's his prayer. God, do you know what you're doing? You just had me make the worst financial decision of my life. This is crazy that you would have me buy this land. And the Lord says in verse 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And God's going to build on this idea now as he answers Jeremiah's confusion, as he answers Jeremiah's prayer. And he's going to do it by looking at some of the things that God is powerful enough to take care of. That there's nothing that's impossible for him. Now, we can understand that intellectually. It's a whole other thing to live it, right? We can say there's nothing, all things are possible with the Lord. God can do all things. But then when we're facing something really big, it's hard for us to realize that God is still able to do. He is still able to deliver. He's still able to bring us through that there's nothing too hard for God. That he can work in it all. So the Lord says, he's going to begin, as we take a look at verse 28, he's going to say, here's some things that you need to realize. And first off, he begins with this. I will punish sin. Sin is not too big for me to deal with. It's not too big of a problem. Now, why is that important to us? Because a lot of times we struggle when we look at the evil in the world. We look at the evil in the world and we say, how in the world can God allow such things to go on? And God says, listen, trust me in this. The punishment that I have for sin is going to be more abundant than you can ever even begin to imagine. In our wildest imaginations of what hell is like or what separation from God is like, we cannot even begin to fathom how terrible it is. So God says, listen, I have the ability to punish sin. I have the ability to do what's right. I have the ability to take care of this, even as he's taking care of the sin within his own people. His own people. Listen, some people would have looked at the nation of Israel just like maybe some of us have done with friends. Maybe we've had a friend that we've really put our trust and hope in and they burned us. A lot of people will say, you burned me, that's it, we're done. But that's not the way God is. God knows how to deal with that sin within the person or within the nation so that that nation can still be redeemed. So that it's not lost, so that it's not all over. So God lays it out for us. He begins in chapter uh, 28. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And we talked about this in the first five books of the Bible when the Lord said the land of Canaan belongs to him. Actually, the, the world and the fullness thereof is his, right? God owns it all. Is everybody okay with that? God owns it all. So is it okay with, for the owner to decide who lives where? I think it is. I think it's okay for the owner to decide who gets what piece of property and to whom he gives what land. And so he decided that he would give the children of Israel the land of Canaan. But you remember the day they entered into the land, God told them, Listen, if you're not gonna if you're gonna be just like them, I'm gonna put you out too. And do you remember what happened? 
We know they came in and they started well, right? We ever see people start well within, uh, within ministry? We see people start well with their walk with the Lord? But does it matter how you start or how you finish? How you finish. And they, they didn't finish well, did they? By the time of the judges, we have 400 years of idolatry. Followed by the times of the kings, in which you had good kings and bad kings, right? Saul was kind of mediocre, bad most of the time. But he, he did have a bright start, but a poor finish. Then you have David, who was a man after God's own heart. And you have Solomon, who had all the wisdom of God poured out into his life. But then the kingdom splits. Goes into two parts. The northern kingdom goes into idolatry immediately. The northern kingdom moves up toward Dan. That becomes their center. Dan leads them into to idolatry immediately. And so they go into captivity about 150 years earlier than the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom has a, a, a grip of good and bad kings. Sometimes they're doing all right. Sometimes there's a revival. Sometimes they're not doing all right. But ultimately, God tells them all the way through, look at what happened to the northern kingdom. I sent them into captivity. God sent them into captivity. Not Listen, this is what you got to understand. God is not looking to punish. God is looking to, to prepare, to set them up to be who they need to be. He is fixing. God's not sitting in heaven saying, I cannot wait to whoop them. I cannot wait. I'm so excited about the destruction of the wicked. Is that what the scripture says? God says he has no glory in the destruction of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn, repent, and live. He's not glorying about the punishment, but he will do whatever is necessary in the life of you, me, and in the nation of Israel to accomplish what he needs to accomplish, to get them on track. So they go into captivity. That's what we're reading about now. God says, I know how to take care of the sin. They struggled in idolatry all the way to this point. But I want you to understand, from this point forward, idolatry is going to be cured. At the time of Jesus, there wasn't a lot of idolatry, was there? It was a lot of religious uh, craziness, rules and regulations, but there wasn't idolatry. Idolatry was purged in Babylon. God took care of that part. So he's saying, listen, I'm going to let you go into the hands of the Chaldeans. And he says in verse 29, And the Chaldeans who fight against the city will come and set fire to this city and burn it. Within the houses whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. He says, listen, there was sin in every place. So God says, I'm going to burn it all down. Get rid of it. Sin had stained every home. So God's going to wipe it out. Start over. Do you ever wonder why you get to the end of the book of Revelation? God says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Sin has stained heaven. How could sin stain heaven? Read the book of Job. It says when the, the sons of God were gathered before the Lord, that Satan came before them and accused who? Job. God says, have you considered my servant Job? Satan was there in the presence of God in heaven. He has access. We see in Revelation chapter 12, Satan has access to God. In Revelation chapter 12, you see him cast out. And the scripture tells us that he's cast out and it says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the devil is coming and he knows he has a short time. Now, I believe we're going to get to see that. 
Now, has the fall of him already occurred? Yes. Has he taken a third of the angels with him? Yes. But he has access to God. That's why his name is Satan. That means the accuser. The scripture says he accuses the brethren day and night. And who is the advocate against the accuser? Who's the lawyer for those with whom he accuses? The scripture tells us that our lawyer, our advocate, is Jesus Christ the righteous. Whoever lives to make intercession for you and I. He deals with the accusations. One day, heaven will be purged. It will be gone, rolled up like a scroll, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. When God looks at the nation and the city, if you will, of Jerusalem, he sees it, idolatry everywhere. That people burned incense to Baal, that they did these horrible things in their homes. And so God says, I'm taking that all down. No remembrance of it. Wash it all away. So God's going to wipe out. He's going to destroy the house. Why? Because sin is in every place. He says in verse 30, Because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands, says the Lord. We have to understand that our deeds, apart from a relationship with Christ, are evil continually. For some reason, it's easier for us to see that someone else is evil. We are evil. We are wicked. Our hearts are just as messed up as everybody else's. The only difference in our heart from someone else's heart is the fact that Jesus Christ rules and reigns. And so he begins that work of sanctification in our life, changing us from the inside out, not from the outside in. A lot of times we try to change from the outside in, right? I'm not going to do this no more, and I'm not going to do that no more, and I'm not going to do that no more. And those are probably good things. But the change that's lasting is the change that God does from the inside out. That work from the inside. He says, listen, their works are evil continually. For this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day they built it. Even to this day, so I will remove it from before my face. Think about it. God was judging the Jebusites, when he told the children of Israel to come and, and cast out every inhabitant in the land and possess the land. But the children of Israel never did it. Until the time of David, they never moved the Jebusites out. David's the one who gains Israel or, or gains Jerusalem as a, as a city, the city of peace. David's the one who, who finally takes possession of that. But the Lord says it's been evil all the time, always evil. And I want you to think about it. Which of the prophets didn't they kill? Which of the prophets didn't they ignore? Which of the ones didn't they try to stone in their cities? Think of all the stuff they had done in that place. God says it's, it's over. It's over. Judgment day had come. God was purging the city. He was going to deal or is going to deal with sin. He goes on to say that sin was not only in every place, but it's at every level of their society. Look, because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He wants them to understand it's not just everybody else. It's everybody Everybody, think about the priesthood when we come to the book of Judges. You guys remember as we went through the book of Judges and it's 400 years of, of mostly down when the, the Levites forgot the word. 
They didn't ever read their word. They never read the first five books of Moses that they had. They never read the word of God. They forgot it was there. They started just introducing Baal worship and and worship with Ashtoreth and all this false worship into worship with God. The priest didn't realize how to take care of the offering or do those things at the time of Samuel. Eli and his two sons are killed for their wickedness because they didn't know how to be the priests of God. And God changed the high priesthood to another family. The family of, of Zadok is going to become the family of the high priest. And, and as we look at all of those things taking place, the message that God is saying is, nothing is impossible for me. I know how to deal with sin. I know how to take care of it. And it is everywhere with every person from leadership to just the regular person living in the city. Sin is everywhere in, in everyone. It says in verse 33, And so they turn to me the back and not the face. And this is the thing that was, I think, the real turning point in, in their relationship with God and God's relationship with them. They're not even trying. You understand? That's what he's saying. They turn their back to me and not their face. It's one thing to be like Paul in Romans chapter 7, isn't it? To say, the things I ought to do, I don't do. I know those things that I'm supposed to do. And Paul was saying, man, I'm trying to be this person, but the power to be that person I lack in my life. But what was he turning? He was turning his face toward God. He's facing the right direction. When someone turns their back to God, they're not even trying. They're turning their back on God and they're doing their own thing. And that's what God's saying here. He's saying they they turn their back to me and not their face. Though I taught them, listen to what the Lord said, though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not listened to receive instruction. The whole book of Proverbs. What's it about? The contrast between who? The wise and the fool. What is the wise? The wise receives instruction. What about the fool? The fool doesn't learn, even though he gives his back to those who, who strike his back, even though he, he faces the, the scourging. A fool doesn't learn from instruction. And that's what the Lord said. I'm instructing, I'm trying to do these things in, in their life and move in your life, but you will not learn. Not that they cannot. He doesn't say that. He says you won't. You won't. You despise instruction. You're, you're not allowing the, these things to take place. Think about Jesus in his ministry in the parable of the sowers. He said the sower went out to sow, and he sowed good seed, right? But all his seed did not bring forth a crop. Some of it fell on hard ground, right? And the birds swooped in and took it. Some of it fell on shallow ground. <clears throat> Some of it fell on good ground. The good ground brought forth crop, but not all of it did. Because some of them didn't care to hear. Jesus said, let him who has ears to hear, hear. If you don't want to hear, don't hear. But it doesn't mean that I haven't tried to instruct you. That's what he's saying to them. <clears throat> he had tried to instruct and brought instruction, but they refused to learn. And that refusal to learn in the book of Proverbs is a division between the wise and the fool. The refusal to learn. It says in, in verse 34, Instead of learning, they set up their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. So not only was there sin in every place, and sin at every level, but there's even sin in the house of God. Because what they were doing was worshiping God, but introducing everything else too. 
In the life of a believer, in the life of a Christian, there is no room, zero room, for the world and God to dwell in the same place. You, you choose one or the other. Which is it going to be? I can't live in both worlds. I can't live serving God and, and mammon. Isn't that what the Lord said? You serve one and hate the other. But you cannot do both. The problem with them is they were trying to do it all. We're worship Baal, worship Ashtoreth, worship God. And the same kind of thing happens within the, the body of Christ today when we try to be at peace with both the world and God. God said, you choose. You're either at war with me and at peace with the world or at peace with me and at war with the world. But you can't have it both ways. It's a, it's a relationship. That relationship with God is a relationship that demands everything. If it is just God's got half your heart or a quarter of your heart or a little bit of your life, then he doesn't have you at all. You need to know that. That's why the scripture says, do not deceive yourself. You need to understand, God wants it all. All or nothing. That's the, that's the program. That's the program. All or nothing. And that was the problem with them. They were bringing into the temple all kind of idolatry. Now, what's our temple? The scripture says that our body is the temple of God, right? So what are we bringing in? What are we, not what are we defiling with food. Listen, how many times does Jesus have to tell us, it's not what's outside that defiles us, it's what? What's inside already? What's inside already? That's what defiles. So he's not talking about what are you eating, but what do we have? What do we have on the throne of our heart? What are we sharing that throne with? Is it, is it Jesus Christ, is the Lord God Almighty upon that throne? Or are we crowding him to one side while we fill our heart with all kinds of other things? That's a struggle. And that's a question that we have to ask ourselves. What is my primary passion? Because God says our primary passion needs to be Him. It needs to be Him, and He's worth it. He's worth it. He's worthy of our praise. But here they had set up other idols within God's house. Look at verse 35. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire to Molech. The Valley of Hinnom is still there. It goes by another name. Jesus called it by the name it's known by now. Gehenna. Which means the Valley of Hinnom. And earlier in the book of Jeremiah, it was called the Valley of Slaughter. You remember that's where they killed their kids. It's where they slaughtered their children. They brought them to that place to kill them on altars, to the God of pleasure, to the God of prosperity... To the God Molech. They would offer him in that place. And God says, listen, you put these high places here. This is Jerusalem. I want you to picture it. Jerusalem. I'm standing, let's say I'm standing on the temple. Okay? I'm standing on the temple and I'm facing to the south. And as I look to the south of the temple, I look down into the city of David. And the city of David runs down into the valley of Hinnom. To my left... It runs down. Remember, I'm on a hill. To my left, it runs down into the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley flows down and then turns a corner and becomes the Valley of Hinnom. And that place is where the dump was. That's the place where tradition says Judas hung himself. 
That's the place where they took and threw away their babies. We did not invent that. They were doing it back then. They were doing it then. And it was one of the marks of the nation that God had a problem with. You're slaughtering your children. And even on their best day, they couldn't do as many as we do. And even on their best day, they couldn't affect as many countries as we affect trying to push the agenda of abortion around the world. My Secretary of State thinks that's their job. To make sure that there are abortions available everywhere. To look at our world and the circumstances that we find ourselves in and to think that God's not going to judge this nation. We are fooling ourselves. God will judge. But he's not going to get, he doesn't receive any glory from that judgment. He is able to judge sin. But he would much rather forgive a repentant heart than to judge one and cast him into everlasting damnation. What was hell created for? The devil and his angels, right? Not for men. Not for men. We study the book of Revelation and we come in that new heaven and new earth. The scripture says there's a new Jerusalem. And the measurements of the new Jerusalem roughly make the new Jerusalem a cube the size of the moon. Upon which people would be able to live on the surface and inside. Like, I want you to think of it as a giant apartment building the size of the moon. That's a big place, right? Lots of rooms available inside all the way to the middle. Not like a planet, but like a giant place. Remember Jesus said, I go to what? Prepare a place for you, right? In my Father's house are what? Many rooms, many mansions, many apartments. That's the idea of the New Jerusalem. And when you look at the measurements of the New Jerusalem and how many people it can hold, I want you to understand this fact. Every person ever born, there's room for everyone. There's room for every person ever born. It means God's intent in creation was not to send a bunch of people to hell. That's a choice he gives us, right? The choice to reject salvation, to reject the opportunity for repentance, to come to him, rejecting him and putting ourselves in a place. If we, go to, if we go to hell, if someone goes to hell, they will have had to step over the broken body of Jesus Christ to do it. They will have to step over the sacrifices, the writer of Hebrews says, and count his sacrifice as a common thing. Like it doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference. Well, this is that judgment. This is that judgment that God is calling to. The, and and I, found this, uh, I found this quote I wanted to share with you guys. It says, The moral worth of a culture is not determined by how it treats the strong, the rich, or the beautiful, but how it treats the weak, the poor, and the vulnerable. And in uh, Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel chapter 16, we all, when we, when we tell stories about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, we often say Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because of homosexuality. That's a lie. That's not why it was destroyed. It was not destroyed because of homosexuality. It was destroyed because it had an abundance of time, an abundance of resource, and it did not care about the poor. 
That's what God said to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 16. That manifested itself, that abundance of time, abundance of resources, and the, and the inability to care about the poor at all, it, it, it showed itself in selfish ways. When self becomes your idol, when self becomes a form of worship in your life, all sort of sin is going to come out of that. One of those sins, when self is your God, is homosexuality. That's not the only one. But it's one of them. It was the effect of the sin that was already working in their life for which God judged them. But they had a lot. And they didn't care. And whenever I think about that, whenever I read that section in Ezekiel, I cannot help but think about our country who spends more money on beer in one weekend watching NFL games than it would cost to feed the world. I think that's a problem. Everybody says world hunger is a struggle, you know, we can't ever solve. Um, we could. We don't want to. There was a time when we paid, we, got, we know, right, when we paid farmers not to farm. So the prices would stay where they need to stay. While people starved. How do you justify that? God says, listen, is anything too hard for me? I'm going to deal with sin. I'm going to bring that judgment. God will do that work. But listen, when we come to verse 36, everything changes. Because on one hand, in the, in the personality and the character of God is God's desire, his, 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 the fact that he must judge sin. And he will do so. But right alongside with that part of God's character is that part of God's character that wants to extend grace and mercy to the repentant. In verse 36 begins, and we've been talking about judgment, right? Talking about judgment, heavy judgment, judgment, judgment. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord. Now, he's saying, now, in light of that judgment, in light of that judgment, literally, this is what it means. <clears throat> Even though you are despicable sinners, and I will destroy you in my wrath, now, therefore, I will never stop doing good for you. Look at verse 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, of which you say it will be delivered to the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and famine and pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger and in my fury and in my great wrath. The question is, when we look at this in the judgment of God, is how can a people guilty of these kind of sins become God's people again? And the answer is, by the grace of God. In God's grace. He never had to give them another chance, does he? Does he ever have to? A holy and righteous God? He never has to. But he, all, he is also a God of love and a God of grace and a God of compassion. And here he is. His compassions again. He begins to, he's going to tell them six things that he's going to do for them. Six things good that he's going to pour out in their life. The first thing is, he wants them to know what they're going through is not forever. 
God's going to purge the sin in their life, but it's not forever. And so he says, I will bring you home. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that is an important promise for me. Because there are some days I am ready to go home. But I know something. I know this ain't it. I know there's not a place here where I'm going to go and find my solace. I know my home is with him. And the same way he's telling them, I'm going to bring you back into the land, he is saying to me, I will bring you home. He is able to keep what I have committed unto him unto that day. I put my faith and trust in him. He is able to finish the work he begun. Isn't that what the scripture says? He says he will finish. I will complete it. He doesn't leave us half done, half sanctified, half saved. Who does the work of salvation? Me? Him. Right? He does that work. I love that. I'll bring you home. I'm going to bring you home. I'll bring you from the four corners, from everywhere that I send you, from everywhere that you go. Now listen, they're not in the four corners of the world right now. Where are they? In Babylon. That's not four corners. That's one place. What is God looking forward to? He's looking forward to the fact that when they reject Jesus Christ, they are going to be scattered to the four corners of the earth, and he wants them to know, I'm going to bring you back. I'm not throwing you out. I'm not throwing you away. I'll bring you back. I'll bring you back. I'm going to bring you back. He says, from the places where you were driven in my anger, I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They dwell in safety right now? No. You turn on the news. Somebody's launching a missile. Somebody's shooting them. Somebody's blowing up a bunch of kids in a mall. There's no safety now. What is he talking about? When will that safety occur? Is it some day in the future when the earth gets it together? Well, sort of. It's that day when Jesus Christ returns as a ruling and reigning king and sets up his kingdom and they receive him. At the first time Jesus came, he came to his own and his own received him not. But he will come again and they will receive him. And he will be their king and they will dwell in safety. He will give them safety. They will have the kingdom that God promised them back in Genesis. They will have a literal kingdom that God promised them. He will bring them home. In verse 38, the second thing. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. God says that he takes ownership of them. What's the big deal? The big deal is God's not ashamed to be called their God. God's not ashamed to be called their God. He would say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If it was up to me, I might have left Jacob off. I'm okay with Abraham, and I'm okay with Isaac, but Jacob was a lying, manipulating thief. And I'm not going to be known by him. I want to be known by Abraham or Isaac. But that's not God. God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, you are my people. He's not ashamed to be known as their God. He takes ownership. The second thing he promises them, the second thing we see grace extended, is you are mine. You are my what? Pearl of great price. You are my what? Treasure in the field. 
for which Jesus was willing to pay everything to gain. You are that prize. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? Because you are his prize. We are his portion. And he is ours. Our inheritance, our portion. He goes on to say, and then, the third thing, then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. He's going to give them a new heart. That's what he's saying. He says, I will give them one heart in one way. There's only one way you're going to have one heart in one way. We have a new heart. What do we know about the old one? God already told him in Jeremiah, it is deceitful and wicked. It's poison. It's good for nothing. God says, I'm going to give them one heart. Common heart, common goal, common focus. It only comes when God gives us a new heart. It's that regenerating heart that we see in the life of a believer. It's not our old heart, it's the new one that God's given us. That new and perfect heart that God pours into our life. The third promise, he says, I'm going to give them a new heart. I'm going to give them a new heart. And this new heart is going to be key, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. Because the beginning of wisdom is what? Fear of God. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's the idea, that we would place God in that rightful place in our life. He's on the throne. He's on the throne. He's in that rightful place. He's where he needs to be. Then, not only that, not only will he give them a new heart, but he says, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good. He says, I will make an everlasting covenant. What covenant is he talking about? We just read about it in chapter 31. It's a new covenant. It's a new covenant when he says, I will put my law in their hearts. He talks about the new covenant which Jesus Christ brings in. He says, that will be an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant to my people to do them good. What good did he do them? He gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's what he did. The everlasting covenant that he gave for his people. That's the fourth thing. That he would give them an everlasting covenant. And then he says, and I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. They will not depart from me. I will put my fear in their hearts so they will not depart from me. The fifth promise, he says, I'll keep them. God's going to do in their life what is necessary so that he can keep them. God is the one that keeps us. It's not we ourselves. We cannot keep ourselves. God does it. God does it. He says, I'll put my fear in their hearts. I'm going to put in their hearts what's necessary that they'll walk with me all the days of their life. He says, I'm going to pour out that within them. I will keep them. And then he goes on in verse 41 and gives us the sixth thing. Yes, and I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart, with all my soul. God says, the sixth thing, I will rejoice over them my people he will rejoice over his people man he's going to rejoice over them that that final promise that sixth promise i am going to rejoice means i'm going to be stoked for you i'm stoked for the relationship that we have i'm stoked for all the good that i'm able to do he didn't say that about the bad did he did he say i'm really excited to do this i'm really excited for the loss of life i'm really excited for the judgment that has to come 
No, but when he talks about his grace, he's stoked about that. He will rejoice over his people. And then he answers. After all that, he's going to answer Jeremiah's question. For thus says the Lord, Just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised. There's a a theology out there called replacement theology. Replacement theology says that the church has replaced the nation of Israel. That is not able to, uh, you're not able to have that view and still believe in the literal interpretation of the scripture. Scripture here says very plainly, just as I brought calamity, I will bring all the promises. Just like I, you see in one hand, God's power to what? He is able, he is able to judge sin. But on the other hand, what do we see? We see God's power to save the sinner. On one hand, God's power to judge sin. On the other hand, God's power to save the sinner. He said, just like I can bring calamity, I can bring all the promises. He sat before the children of Israel and he told them, blessing and cursing. You choose. Which road are you going to take? This road leads to death. This road leads to life. Choose life, he said. Choose life. Just like I can bring judgment, I have the power to judge sin. I have the power to save the sinner. He says, not only that, not only will I do the things I promised them, and the fields will be bought in this land, of which you say it's desolate without man or beast. It has been given to the hand of the Chaldeans, but men will buy fields for money, sign deeds and seal them, and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south. For I will cause their captives to return, says the Lord. Jeremiah's question, what was it? God, why have you had me do this worst deal ever? Jeremiah, in the beginning of his prayer, he said, God, I know you're able to do all things, but why have you had me do this? And then God's answer, is anything too hard for me? You said you knew I could do all things. You know I can judge sin. You need to know I can save the sinner. And I'm going to bring him back. In Zephaniah, I want to say Zephaniah 13.7, but it might be 3.17. You know, sometimes those numbers get messed up in my head. The scripture says that our God is mighty to save. He is. He's able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. God is able. He will judge sin, but he would much rather save the sinner and that's what he's telling jeremiah hey that's here judgment has come and one day that judgment is going to come to the earth right we understand that one day that judgment will come here i'm not sure it's that far away one day that judgment will come when that judgment comes god say the same thing no glory in the destruction of the wicked but that the wicked would turn repent and live while he is able to judge sin I think he rejoices as the scripture says in his ability to save a sinner amen we're going to spend some time in a time of prayer on, like we do on Sunday night so I want to invite you to have a time of open prayer uh, just an opportunity for the spirit to move and uh, if the Lord lays on your heart a prayer you'd like to pray or share a word we want to give you that opportunity as we seek his face tonight
Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for this time. We thank you that we can be here. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word and to know you more. God, we pray, Father, as we as we just lean on you in this time, that you would move in a mighty way. God, that you would open our eyes. And, Father, that you would just speak to our heart, Lord, in those areas in our life. Are we, are we just making room for you in our life, or are we making you our life? God, I pray that you would do that work. I thank you that you are able, even as you did for the nation of Israel, to purge us, to make us clean, and that you want to do that perfect work in our life. And I thank you that you rejoice over your finished product as you redeem the people. Lord, I I just pray, God, that you would do that perfect work in us. Lord, as we look to you, we pray that you would move in this place, that you would guide us and lead us as we seek to live lives, Lord, that honor you. 